Hey y'all, it's Dr. Samina Rahman, Gyno Girl. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, a clinical assistant professor of OBGYN at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, and owner of a private practice for almost a decade that specializes in menopause and sexual medicine. I'm a South Asian American Muslim woman who is here to empower, educate, and help you advocate for health issues that have been stigmatized, shamed, and perhaps even prevented you from living your best life. I'm better than your best girlfriend and more open than most of your doctors. I'm here to educate so you can advocate. Welcome to Gyno Girl Presents Sex, Drugs, and Hormones. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's me, Dr. Samina Rahman, Gyno Girl. I'm so excited to start my journey with you all, really learning to advocate for yourself through education and knowledge. I'm going to educate so you can advocate. And so I'm here to do that for you today. In one of my first episodes here on this podcast, I like to be vulnerable with my patients. I'm a board certified gynecologist. I've been in practice for 18 years and I've been treating women for sexual dysfunction, menopause, and significant gynecologic issues, vulvovaginal issues for the last 10 in my own private practice. And one of the things that I've learned in my journey is that, and I'm going to talk to you about it today, the reason that I'm here and the reason that I'd started studying sexual medicine is very personal. And it has to do with the fact that we do not educate our patients enough when it comes to our own sexual health. The educational systems fail us from a point of view of sexual education. Across the board, we need to do better. And I'm here to help try to do better. And let me tell you that it's been a journey for me. I started out in private practice 10 years ago, in my own private practice about 10 years ago. And prior to this, I was studying, I was trying to get through medical school, residency, a very typical story of someone who was really geared toward becoming a doctor. And in my journey, finding a spouse and a husband was kind of secondary, even though culturally, it probably should have been primary. And so by the time I finished residency and hit 30 years old, I grew up in a culture, as I said in my previous podcast, my parents are South Asian from Pakistan and really instilled all the values within us as immigrants into this country to maintain that culture, to, to hold on to it. And so all these values were instilled and shame around uh, understanding my body was also instilled. And so in this journey of my own, finding my spouse was, is one of the highlights of my life. And I was able to meet someone in af after I turned 30. And he's a very loving and supporting husband. And maybe one day I'll have him on my podcast if I become successful. <laughs> but, but in my journey, I, you know, I met my husband, but I had grown up with this whole notion that we weren't really like co-mingling a lot with the opposite sex in our culture. You know, we weren't allowed to date. And my parents knew I wanted to be a doctor and they encouraged me wholeheartedly. By the time I hit 30, it was one of these things where like, hey, have you met anyone to marry? And it was one of these things that does not um, escape most of us brown girls, I think, is that, you know, for the longest time, don't date, don't don't look, don't do anything. And then all of a sudden you hit a certain age and like, hey, why aren't you married yet? And uh, most of my friends always joke about the same thing. But in this journey of mine, I you know, ended up sort of meeting my husband later. And we finally, um, you know, got married after the age of 30. 
And when I was a resident and during training, I met plenty of patients who were South Asian, and many of them had difficulties with their vaginal exams. And this was pretty common. In fact, there was so much implicit bias against South Asian women that, and I talk about this a lot in a lot of the talks that I do, that, you know, I had attendings who were like, what are, what's the deal with your people? Hey, why don't you go take care of this patient? You know, she's got brown girl syndrome. And it was one of these things where like brown girl syndrome, wait, what is this? What is brown girl syndrome? Why are you talking about my people like they're an other that have an issue? I literally had someone tell me like, what's the deal with your people? They act like they've never had anything in the vagina. And it's because a lot of patients in my culture and community suffer from vaginismus. And so that's what I'm going to talk about. And it's unfortunate, and I wanted to be this the, the first major topic I discussed because this topic and this concept of brown girl syndrome and whatever else you want to cause is really the impetus that pushed me into sexual medicine because I just couldn't believe that all of my Caucasian male and female attendings looked at women this way. I couldn't believe that yeah, a lot of us do suffer from this. And and it's not okay to make fun of it. It's not okay to say like, hey, you go take care of your patient, your, your girl. She's brown. You need to go take care of her. I mean, these things, and I've talked to other OBGYNs that are, are either Muslim, South Asian, Indian, you know, Bangladeshi, whatever, and they've all had the same experience in their residency where they were told similar things. And so it became one of these things where like, in my journey, I was like, wow, this is something that's really affecting a lot of people and they're not getting the appropriate care because they're being dismissed. They're being gaslit. They're, they're not being taken seriously. This is brown girl syndrome, right? Like this is not something that is real. This is in their head. And so that's why I kind of want to talk about vaginismus and also the fact that I actually suffered from it myself. So I would say 90% of my friends who are Muslim have but and again, I'm in I'm in downtown Chicago, so I have a very diverse patient population. But I do have a far a large number of, of religious patients that come to me, and, and many of them have this similar situation. So let's talk about it. Vaginismus is where you have an involuntary contraction of your pelvic floor, and it happens for many reasons. And it can be secondary to a lot of things, or it can be primary. It can be secondary to provoked pain in the vestibule, the vulvar vestibule, the area from the inner labia minora to the hymen remnant up to the urethra down to the opening. This is your vulvar vestibule. It can, it can have pain because once you get pain with that, you can have um, secondary vaginismus. That vestibular pain can be around hormones. It can be around pelvic floor dysfunction, hypertonic pelvic floor. It can be from nerve proliferation and inflammation. So these are things that a lot of patients suffer from and then will secondarily have vaginismus where they might have been born with a lot of vestibular pain and not able to get penetration or they have an imperforate hymen remnant that makes it inability and unable to be penetrated and then they develop vaginismus. I have patients in menopause from genitourinary syndrome and menopause, which I'm going to talk a lot about in this podcast. And it's where you get the tissue of the vagina and the vulva change because you lose all your estrogen and you lose 50% of your testosterone in menopause and perimenopause. And if the tissue changes, it becomes thin, uh, it's chronic, it's progressive, and it becomes a problem for a lot of patients. And then you get pain at initial penetration, that what we call superficial dyspareunia. And what happens? 
You get a secondary involuntary contraction of your pelvic floor, and that's vaginismus. But let's talk a little bit about vaginismus and its history. I'm going to quote to you because this is this this vaginismus definition and its origins date back to the 1800s. Of course, um, vaginismus was first described by it was first described in 1861 by Dr. Sims. Remember, if you guys have seen my social media or if you've been on a line at all in the last 10 years, I'd say Marion Sims is what used to be considered the godfather or the grandfather of gynecology, modern gynecology, did a lot of work around fistulas. But he also has a very bad legacy in that most of his work that he did was on enslaved women without anesthesia. So this is who is supposed to have discovered modern day gynecology. And he also came up with the concept of vaginismus. It was first described by him. And it really hasn't changed in the last hundred and so years. Okay, but this is what, you know, he said, the most interesting point in the account of women was the fact that although she was married for a quarter of a century, she was still a virgin. And my examination after about this phenomenon, vaginal examination utterly failed. Even my slight touch to the vagina, even my slight touch to the vaginal entrance was causing an intensive reaction. The neural system was in chaos. There was general muscle tension. Her whole body was turning rigid, intermittently and trembling. She was screaming and her eyes were glowing like mad. While teardrops were gliding down her cheeks, this situation that resembled terror, death and agony was very pitiful. Despite the reflection of all physical pain, she was strong, saying, staying on the examination coach. She was begging for me to go on if there was hope for her desperate and wondering if there was hope for her desperate situation. With all my strength, after a few minutes of thrusting, I was able to put a finger into her vagina for a few seconds, but it did not go any further. There was great resistance in the vagina and a rigid contraction that lessened the sensitivity of my finger. Thus, through this examination, I realized that there was there was this hard to overcome contraction of the entrance of the vagina. So that was it. That was Marion Sims in 1861 describing vaginismus function. And I got to tell you, in my training, after so many, so much time, we still, after almost over 150 years, this was pretty much all we learned about sexual dysfunction in my training 18 years ago. And this, you know, we know medicine, medicine evolves. And, and so we need to keep up with it. And so this is a big problem when it comes to women getting sexual medicine care is that there are clinicians out there that aren't evolving their practice. They're not learning the latest research and data. And there's not that much of it. There's only, um, you know, like a few societies that are really involved in this. And the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, which I'm a, a prominent member in, is one of those. And so I'll be talking that a lot about that in my podcast. But that was Marion Sims' description of vaginismus. And that is pretty much what our understanding is, an involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor. And so I like to call it the great wall of vagina because it really is the wall of your muscles that prevents contractions. And pretty pretty consistently what, what patients um, tell me and what spouses say or significant others is that they feel like they're hitting a wall. And what are patients told? A lot of patients are told, hey, go have some wine and, and relax and it'll be fine. And I think this is a big problem that uh, that still is perpetuated. If I'm like the third, fourth or fifth doctor that a lot of patients see for this condition, the first three at least told them that. And maybe you should relax, you know, just keep doing it. It'll be okay. Oh, just have some wine and you're fine. And so this is a big problem. 
And there was another gynecologist who categorized the extent of vaginismus called Lamont grading of vaginismus. The first degree was just a little bit of spasm of the pelvic floor, but you can reassure the patient, you can calm them down, and you can get a physical exam out of it. A second degree vaginismus is really a generalized spasm of the pelvic floor as you hit a steady state despite reassurance. Overall, the patient can't get examined. The third degree vaginismus is where you have pelvic floor spasm that causes the patient to lift their buttocks and attempt to avoid examination. They might even push your, your hands down. And fourth degree is like a severe form where total retreat, lifting the buttocks, moving away from the examiner, tightly closing the thighs to prevent an exam. And there's an amazing plastic surgeon, Dr. Pesic, who is retired now, but he's done a lot of work on vaginismus and Botox. And he describes the more visceral reaction, which is the fifth degree vaginismus, where you get a huge adrenaline output and results in heart palpitations, trembling, shaking, nausea, vomiting, uncontrolled crying, fear of lightheadedness, fainting, you know, maybe even attacking the doctor. So, I mean, this is a big deal. This affects a lot of patients. Statistically, you know, it's probably hard to determine because we don't have enough studies, but depending on if it's primary or secondary, it's pretty common. And for a lot of patients to have this at some point, you know, if they have other underlying comorbidities as well. And so what you have is this sort of uncontrolled spasm of the pelvic floor. And what it leads to is an inability to get penetrated. And many patients will have this from the get-go you know, from the first time they try to have sex and then other patients acquire it over time because they have another biological condition that um, prevents them from getting penetrated. And so then they have, their their mind is then wired that they're going to have pain and then they have a secondary vaginismus, which is that automatic retraction. And so we have this condition, we have a lot of patients that suffer from it, and we have very poor guidance and, and advocacy. And a lot of times what happens is patients become even more and more anxious the more they can't consummate or have sex. And the more anxiety they develop, the more hypertonic the pelvic floor can get. It can get very tense and you can get, you know, these thick, tight bands and in, in trigger points in your pelvis and it makes it really hard to get penetrated. And many patients will state that they've been suffering for years. They've been trying to get help for years. And they don't get the right attention that they need. And a lot of times patients are afraid to even come forward with this. And it's because they have shame around it. They have shame around the fact that it seems so easy for most patients to have sex and I cannot. They have shame around the fact that, you know, their significant other is not getting pleasured or they're not getting, ple- you know, there's a lot, a lot to do with this. And so, you know, we have this situation where this is a condition that we've known about for a very long time and p- patients aren't getting adequate treatment. And this is what inspired me to kind of really do a deep dive into, into sexual dysfunction. The more and more patients I saw with this, the more difficult it got. And what happens is that a lot of women of certain cultures and certain certain underlying, I guess I would say, purity culture. And the reason I see so much of it, again, I'm a South Asian Muslim. And in Islam, you know, obviously, despite it being a fairly sex positive religion overall, you know, when it comes to a lot of factors. And I'm going to do a separate podcast on this, but that ultimately the underlying shame is always there because of the puritanical values that have been adapted. And so the idea of chastity, the idea of not getting vaginal exams, the idea of, of maintaining your hymenal patency, 
the idea of not talking about sex, the idea of not intermingling with other sex sexes, the idea of just avoiding that kind of contact and the fear that, you know, something bad is going to happen to you if you have premarital sex or sex outside of marriage and all of this stuff. It weighs heavy on patients and then their body responds. Their body responds. This is a perfect idea. This is a perfect example of how your mind and body are so connected that if your mind has been ingrained for so long to be socialized that this is wrong, that this might hurt, that this might be painful, that your body will automatically respond to that. And so that's how patients get vaginismus. That's why I see a lot of Muslim patients with vaginismus. I would say 40% of the Muslim patients I see downtown have vaginismus. I see a lot of uh, Jewish and Catholic patients with this condition. I see a lot of Hindu and Sikh patients with this condition. Again, because of the shame and stigmatization around sex, around hormones, around the menses, all of that, it just builds up. And so this so-called brown girl syndrome is, first of all, an awful, awful term that I'm so ashamed that someone in my in my profession came up with uh, as a joke, but it's it's implicit bias. And that bias prevents patients from getting the appropriate treatment they need. So you have these patients with these conditions, uh, either secondary to a biological phenomenon or through social issues or psychological issues like anxiety, depression, that kind of thing. And they develop the situation. And then they have a lot of shame. What happens to a lot of patients, especially like the ones that I'd see in, in the Muslim culture that, you know, maybe have arranged marriages, if they have a long period of time where they're trying to consummate their marriage and they can't, much of that is related to, you know, not only the lack of education around, you know, how to have sex and all of that, but also around, so a lot of it, of course, is around the lack of education around, you know, how to have sex or, or you know, about your anatomy even. I mean, that's one of the first things I do for patients. I show them their anatomy. but it also has to do with, uh, it also can create other problems in the marriage along with just, you know, that unconsummated marriage can lead to male male sexual dysfunction too. Men can oftentimes in association develop erectile dysfunction and they can develop premature ejaculation. And so it brings me back to another concept that I'm going to drive home in this podcast that a lot of what we do is individualized based medicine that is approached through a biopsychosocial way, meaning that the model for treatment for most sexual dysfunction is a biopsychosocial model. We look at the biological factors involved. Is Is there anything related to your hormones involved? Is there anything anatomic happening? We look at the psychological factors involved. Oh, we look at medications and how that might be affecting you. We look at psychological factors. Are there anxiety, underlying anxiety, underlying bipolar, underlying depression? And then we look at this, the social aspects. Are you in a loving relationship? Is somebody supportive? Are they looking to be there for you? And so whenever patients get treated with vaginismus, the treatment, which I'm going to talk about, has to include all of those. And so we're looking at you know, from a biological perspective, how am I as a gynecologist going to help you? I'm going to help diagnose it, number one. Number two, I'm going to refer you to a pelvic floor physical therapist who do wonders. They're amazing. I can't do what I do without their help. I have a wonderful therapist that works with me in my office, Grace Preet, and she has been a game changer in treating my patients. I will have her on this podcast. I had her on my YouTube channel. 
She's phenomenal. She is a game changer. And so is pelvic floor physical therapy. So we work with, you know, not only looking at your, you know, um, hips and your joints, the muscles of the pelvic floor, are there hypertonic areas? Are we going to be able to get that vaginismus under control, that uncontrolled retraction? Because we can't examine a patient, then it becomes more and more difficult for physical therapy. So a lot of times patients will get an anxiolytic for their exam, especially if they're grade four, grade five vaginismus, and they will get assistance through taking that medication to allow an exam if they're really bad. And then going from there, the physical therapists do a lot of internal work and they also work on, you know, looking at your back and your hips and all that stuff and what, how you have bowel movements and how you urinate and all those habits as well. But a lot of what they're going to incorporate is dilator therapy. And of course, dilator therapy, you know, people think about mechanical dilation only in the stretching, but there's also a lot to do with not only that, but desensitization. Desensitization therapy is a big part of most anxiety treatment. And if you think of this as almost like an anxiety of the pelvic floor where you know your, your vagina is anticipating pain and it just involuntarily contracts. And so by desensitizing the vagina through sequential dilation of the vagina, then that is a critical part. And then where else I might come into the equation is many times I do vaginal Botox for this. Botulinum toxin, which is the stuff that we know that people use in their face, actually discovered first by ophthalmology, I believe. Vaginal Botox. Okay, so um, oftentimes I'll use vaginal Botox, which is botulinum toxin, uh, originally discovered by uh, an ophthalmologist, I believe. Uh, it's used to treat a lot of hyperkinetic movement disorders, as we know about um, spasticities. And so a lot of what's happening in the pelvic floor is spasm, right? What we have is, you know, an involuntary reaction, involuntary spasm of the pelvic floor. It works um, by preventing acetylcholine release neurotransmitter um, at the neuromuscular junction, and it blocks the synapse in the neuromuscular transmission. And then that forces the muscles to get relaxed or get, you know, temporarily like um, paralyzed, relaxed, that kind of thing. It also reduces the release of pain mediators, including a pain mediator called substance P which helps to modulate the pain. So we're getting two things. We're getting the pelvic floor relaxed and we're getting pain modulation. And so it's really important to look at that. Dr. Plasic, the plastic surgeon I talked about earlier, did come up with a great protocol, multimodal protocol to treat vaginismus, which includes for severe cases, Botox under anesthesia, and then some so that's really IV sedation and then botulinum toxin injecting into those hypertonic tense muscles and trigger points and then placing dilator in the vagina as you wake up so that you know that it's there and that will help automatically desensitize. And part of that protocol is also using injectable lidocaine as well or, or, or longer acting anesthetic. And so that's where I come in and that's a lot of what I do is the Botox and working with the dilators and looking for any other biologic cause that we can treat. And then I'll hook up a patient with a sex therapist. Sex therapy is very important for both the husband or spouse or significant other, whoever they are choosing to have penetrative intercourse with. That person needs to also be with them in the sex therapy room to talk about all the things 
I'm going to have a sex therapist on to talk to you about what they do. And so that's part of it. And then the third part is couples therapy. So we have potentially three different therapists and a clinician that help patients through this journey of vaginismus. And so, so we have a physical therapist, a sex therapist, a regular therapist that maybe do, does cognitive behavioral therapy on some of the patients, as well as a clinician. And that is how a lot of women get over their vaginismus. And I'm going to actually have a special guest on for the second part of this discussion, someone that I helped initially with the journey of vaginismus and how it impacted her quality of life, how it might have impacted her marriage, as well as her view on her sexuality. So that's the treatment for vaginismus. And it's really important that patients understand what's going on with their body. It's really important that they look at it with the mirror. It's really important that they see someone who's going to listen to them and not just assume because the color of their skin is brown that they're going to have this involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor or brown woman syndrome, brown girl syndrome, whatever this clinician, who I will not mention, said. To, uh, to many of us in, in residency and beyond. So that's kind of how we treat it. And then I spoke a little bit at the beginning of this podcast about how it took me a while to find my husband and, and my journey finding someone. And then I, because raised in a Muslim family, I, I wanted to, you know, wait to have proper relations under, under the, under the con- contractual agreement of marriage that we have in Islam. And I'm a gynecologist. I was over the age of 30. I've dealt with patients with vaginismus, and yet I suffered from vaginismus. It took a good month before I could have penetrative intercourse, and it was really shocking to me because I kept thinking about the teenagers that I had taken care of that were having intercourse, or I would think about all the people that, you know, I saw that, okay, maybe theirs was because of this, and oh, they don't have the education that I have. You know what? That ran deep. I was educated. I knew my anatomy. I knew what was going on. But I still um, had so many hiccups about the whole idea of penetration and intercourse and everything that goes with it that it was a big problem. And, you know, as long as you have a supportive, you know, significant other, then I think you can get through most anything in your marriage. But it does. It's not a me problem, right? I think that's something we have to emphasize. When when there is someone that has sexual dysfunction, it's not just that person's problem. It's a couple issue, right? And so when both people are invested in it and both people are working toward it, then you can ultimately, um, you know, have success. I now have three children. I have a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 4-year-old, and I'm sure you're going to hear from them intermittently as they try to intrude into my podcast. But I have to say that without the support of someone to help you through these journeys in your health and without your your own advocacy, no matter what you think, that is very important. And so it did come as a shock to me. You know, I thought I could just mentally convince myself like, Hey, you just have to relax. You just have to relax. You just have to relax. And it was, it's involuntary. You can't control it. You know, you literally can't control it. And that was the most baffling and difficult part for me. And I think that when I do sometimes get vulnerable with patients and tell them they're relieved, honestly, they're like, oh, wow, but you're a gynecologist. You were tra- taking care of patients with this issue. You're over the age of 30. You, you know, you have so much education and knowledge about this. 
and yet you also suffered from this. So this problem reaches beyond socioeconomic status. It reaches beyond religious status. Although a lot of studies do demonstrate increased religiosity, intrinsic religiosity, what you do, what you practice, how you look at things does potentially increase your risk for sexual dysfunction and vaginismus, which is probably the most common around the world, the most common type of sexual dysfunction that at least in the literature around the world. And so what I like to say is that, you know, it can happen to anyone. And common things may be common, but they're not normal. And at some point you have to say, okay, what, you know what, I'm going to take the bull by the horn and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to find someone and I won't stop until I find someone to advocate for me and with me. And I'm going to advocate for myself until I get there. And that's what my patients do. And that's what I did. And that's what we have to do as women comes to our healthcare journey. And I'm just here to educate so that you can advocate. And I hope that you guys gained a little bit of insight into why I do this podcast, a little bit of insight about vaginismus. We're going to talk a little bit more about that involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor, my next guest, and we're going to talk about her journey and how it impacted her quality of life and her life as we know it. It can really have a detrimental impact on people's lives when they don't get treatment, and it can end relationships. It can prevent you from having the kids that you wanted, and so recognizing the problem is the first step. The second step is finding the solution and the help and the support to get there. I'm here to educate so you can advocate. Thanks for joining me. Please comment. Please tell your story. Please tell me what else you want to hear about. Please subscribe to my podcast and please leave me a review. Appreciate you. And until next time, thank you. If you have a second, please subscribe to this podcast. I'd love for you to be a follower and learn as much as you can about the things that we're going to talk about with all the people on our journey. Please review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. These reviews really help. Review us, comment, tell me what else you want to hear to get more information. My practice website is www.cgcchicago.com. My website for GynoGirl is www.gynogirltv.com. My Instagram is GynoGirl, so please follow me for some good content. Additionally, I have a YouTube channel, TV, where I love to talk about all these things on YouTube. And please subscribe to my newsletter, Girl News, which will be available on my website. I will see you next time.